Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our third episode of the season with me, Niklas Beer Lundblad, and with me, Richard Allen. Excellent. So, Richard, we thought we would do a bit of a look at something that's really topical and will be even more topical as the year moves on, which is political advertising. Now, political advertising has existed for ages, but uh, recently the European Union decided to publish um, an outdoor draft of rules that would apply to political advertising online. And many of the social media companies and other tech companies have started to publish uh, numbers on how much political advertising they're seeing and to the tune of how many million. So how do you think this will work out? Will this will this be a resounding success that saves our elections in the future? Or is this something that, that largely misses the mark? Yeah, I mean, it's curious. So the, the um, proposed regulation w- was actually put out a year ago, and it's on the transparency and targeting of political advertising. But they've got to the stage now, having done a bunch of consultation, where by the end of the month, the commission... European Commission should be formally adopting it. And then when they formally adopt it, obviously, it then goes through the legislative process. Now, um, uh, so to your question, is it going to save democracy? I think the answer is no. (laughs) It's very narrow in scope. And to to be fair to the Commission, it's part of a sort of broader package of measures. But but actually, for those who are not kind of... um, seasoned EU watchers, the, the the reason why it's narrow in scope is actually quite interesting of itself. So so when we sort of look at elections in the round, elections are regulated under national law. They're not something that the EU has competence for. That's the technical word of the EU. The EU is a set of treaties. All of the member states of the EU have agreed to uh, legislate in common in certain areas, but have reserved certain areas to themselves, and they're often very sensitive areas like national security. Um, But one of the areas that's not dealt with at the EU level is elections. Elections are a national competence. You can have different electoral systems. You can can kind of pretty much arrange them the way that you want to. And, And there are very, very different traditions in different countries in the EU. But... Uh, um, goods and services are regulated at the EU level. <laughs> so the, me, the reason that they've gone for you know, quite a narrow regulation specifically around paid-for political advertising is as a single market measure. In, in other words, what they're arguing is for there, for, for there to be a market in online advertising and for a provider of online advertising services. And they're kind of arguing this is, you know, on behalf of the providers of online advertising services, for them to be able to do their business in a unified, harmonized European way, you need a common set of rules. So very, very narrowly going for online advertising and arguing that, look, we need a single market in online political advertising, therefore we have a locus to intervene. Now, of course, the motivation is much more, I think, pro-democratic and political than that. But the way that it has to be expressed in the European Union system is as, as a kind of market-enhancing measure, uh, almost sort of framed as, well, this, this will allow people to sell more ads more freely, uh, uh, at the same time as introducing a, a set of specific <coughs> measures around what those ads can do, and in particular what the, the, the vendors of those ads have to do. But so I, I have a question here that goes back to, to something that you usually ask, and that is about the theory of harm. Whenever yes. you see a regulatory intervention, you see some kind of regulatory proposal, you should be, you have taught us very rightly, I think, to look for what is the theory of harm here. What is what is the harm that you can prevent with this legislation? And the harm also seems to be very narrowly construed. It's not trying to stop people from being affected by political propaganda. It's knowing 
who paid for the propaganda in the first place. So how, how does the theory of what, what do you think if you if sort of let's put our most generous um, hat on mm. and, and ask what the theory of harm is here? So I think there are actually um, really three core harms, and, and we should be candid what they are. I mean, this hasn't come out of nowhere. You, you regulate because you think there's a problem. So one is the notion of foreign interference. And if we go way back and we, we look at the US election, that was very much shaped by the idea that, and I mean, there is evidence. In fact, I think that's the only place where we have a really substantive body of evidence that there was a concerted, organized attempt by one nation state to buy political ads to influence the election in another nation state. And that was Russian operatives, who I think have pretty comprehensively been traced back to the Russian state, these fancy bear type operatives. They've got sort of different code names, but it does look like there were people very deliberately buying ads on political themes in order to influence the US election in which Donald Trump uh, was elected over Hillary Clinton. Clinton, and that's the only. I think I, I'm sure there are lots of other instances, but that is the the sort of uh, demonstrable situation where this concerted ad buying thing took place in an attempt to influence an election. So that's 2016. So that's one route of it. How do we stop that? And obviously, transparency in part helps you to trace those ads back, although. Candidly, it's not it's not sufficient, and actually, one of the sort of papers criticising it from this regulation from uh, a team at the University of Amsterdam uh, calls itself transparency and no more in the political advertising regulation. Kind of summing up that that uh, <clears throat> you know it, it, it will make it transparent, but if it's if it's not illegal <laughs> for Russians to buy ads in in a, a particular election in Europe, of course, the transparency just tells you it's happening. It doesn't necessarily outlaw it. So, foreign interference sort of harm one. Harm two, I think, is another political harm where it's not expressed as explicitly, but I think it'd just be naive not to not to talk about it. And that's the idea that populists, particularly extreme right populists, ha- have been able to get a foothold in uh, many European Union countries in part because they're using these subversive you know, political ad type techniques. And so again, I think there is a very you know explicit or implicit maybe. Uh, rather than explicit, implicit sort of drive behind a lot of the protecting democracy measures, which is you are protecting democracy against unwelcome political forces that are domestic in this case, they're not foreign, but are seen as subversive and damaging to democracy as a whole. And we can have a debate around how appropriate that is, but I think there's no doubt some of these measures are intended to redress the balance where it's seen that these subversive forces are able to use online tools to gain a prominence that they didn't have before. And again, let's dig into that a little bit, because I think that's really interesting as a theory of harm, because what you're saying essentially is that technology shifted the balance towards populism and the advertising rules should shift the balance away from populism. Now, populism is to a large degree in the eye of the beholder, I would argue. Yes. Um, and so you end up in a situation where at least according to the theory of harm that we're outlining now, part of the motivation behind these rules was to shift the balance in favor of the incumbent parties that were already there. I, I think to say that again, I'm I'm happy to say that I think that's what's going on. I mean, yeah, I think there's yeah, no yeah. doubt that no, the wrong guys are winning, uh, and 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 but people genuinely feel 
that some of the wrong guys are it's not like a, a another election where you know it's just a, a bad party that wins but some of these people are are so subversive and so damaging to society that it, that measures to stop them winning are appropriate uh, and necessary and so so you're right but it is partisan i've written a lot about this everything we do in this space has what i call partisan effects that there is a always a partisan effect to to any change you make to the rules around elections and political campaigning and political speech and i think with a lot of the measures we're seeing measures against misinformation disinformation measures in this case around political advertising a common thread is that that you 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 see that there is a group in society or there are political forces in society who you see as harmful destructive in the worst cases potentially you know taking us back to a time that in europe uh, we're particularly scarred by where you have uh, uh, let's call them out again fascist type political forces gaining dominance using populist measures targeting individuals in society using misinformation to to uh, uh, inappropriately seize the levers of power and we know what happens when that 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 occurs and so again i think you have a strong common thread within this to say that we need to get a hold of some of these uh, political tools because they're being used by dark forces but let's then think about history because it's such an interesting thought experiment look at look back at at nazi germany or fascist italy and then you have to ask the question if there had been transparency around who paid for the propaganda that joseph goebbels was sort of pumping out from if there had been transparency around that do we really believe that democracy would then have been resilient do we think that there is something that we could have done theoretically about communication and information I mean, the propaganda would still be the same. We just know who paid for it. And there's like, what I am, it's interesting to me for two reasons. One is that it seems to negate individual agency and say, oh, you all voted in the wrong way because you were manipulated by this horrible technology. I think that's probably quite provocative if you, if you frame it that way. The other thing is that it, there seems to be a theory of, of, of history here that's interesting. To your point that you know history would not have looked the way it looked if we had had other rules in place but those rules can't be these rules because i have a hard time seeing that that what happened in germany and in italy during the 20s and 30s would have been stopped by any rules on political advertising at all i, yes. I just don't buy that theory of change i mean this is something where uh you know as a politician so i'm in this sort of curious place of having having sort of been an active politician and campaigner i've fought and run election campaigns and done political propaganda as a professional over over like very many years and so i i do have a view sort of based on that experience it's not it's not an academically researched view but my view is is that sort of in broad terms uh, um you know that what you do when you're you're pushing out political propaganda is motivating your partisan supporters that you're very rarely actually switching them. People don't switch from left to right because of the stuff that you see. So what you're doing is you're trying to identify the people already in your camp. And and again, an example of this where I think there's some dispute would be over the referendum in the United Kingdom over leaving the EU. Now, some people will will sort of uh, assign the, the result, the outcome that was in favor of leaving the EU to the fact that uh, people were manipulated and cheated into voting to leave the EU somehow, and that the propaganda fundamentally sort of changed the nature of that campaign by moving people from yes to no. Um, 
my own view again would be that no, that that most of the people who were no and most of the people who were yes had made their minds up over many, many years before what the propaganda in the campaign did was to encourage them to get out and vote, to not to change their partisan allegiance, but to to act on it. And so therefore I think it does make a difference. You know, people say, oh, if it's not, if if you're av- you claim, you know, platforms you're advertising is really effective when you're selling soap and then you try and downplay it with politics. Well, I, I don't think we're downplaying it with politics. I think I'm saying it does have an effect, but the effect is to is to encourage partisans to be more partisan and to be active and to get out and vote rather than necessarily switching people um so that would sort of tend to it not having you know to having a different kind of impact from the one that sometimes assumed and the, and the studies seem to show that, that possibly you're overplaying it on the advertising part. And and the other thing that's interesting is that we're just talking about manipulation here. We're talking about sort of someone manipulating an individual um, opinion. There's another aspect of political advertising that is not as prominent in the discussion, and that's discovery. You discover yes. new politicians through their ability to advertise. And actually, that's something that we have seen, that more new politicians... There's a study from Italy, for example, where more new politicians have come to the fore because they've been able to use political advertising and they have not been embedded in traditional party structures or media structures. So it's been their way of entering the political stage. So uh, discovery here is is not something that is taken into account as much as the possible manipulation. Is that right? That, that's right. And that actually brings us neatly actually to the third harm. To the harm. third harm. Yes, yes sorry. Harm. <laughs> a detour. Yeah, yeah, a little detour through through history uh, to, to the third harm. And the, and the third harm... Uh, um, is that you are breaching data protection law, which is now well established in the European Union, by using in particular sort of sensitive personal data or, you know, collected, observed personal data about people's characteristics in order to target political propaganda. So this this is usually framed as a a restriction on or ban on micro-targeting. And within the proposed regulation, it kind of says, no, you know, there should be limits to the kind of data items you can use to target political ads but to your point on discoverability as we've discussed a few times in the in the advertising model look if you get rid of targeting all you're left with is blanket ads and uh you know that's something that a big established party could afford to do so uh, a big established party both both it's sort of useful to them and they could afford to send an ad to everybody in the united kingdom saying you know vote for me your small political force, an upcoming political force that's just trying to get to a niche audience, is likely to be the the sort of cu- a key customer for those uh, targeted ads. So certainly, the big parties do use these hyper targeted ads. They're using ads to just get to particular segments to to encourage them. So they have an ad for dog owners and an ad for cat owners and car owners and bike owners and so on. And and again, this is as old as the hills. I when I, I've been around as a political campaigner for years and we've always done that. We we have a you know, we always have propaganda that we would send to people that we thought were elderly people saying, look, we're gonna give you a great pension. And we have propaganda for people we thought were parents going, look, we're gonna give you great schools and you know, so you do, this is something you've always done. But now you can kind of do it on steroids. Uh, the tools allow you to do it more easily and cheaply than ever before. 
So, well, I mean, zip code was a pretty efficient way of doing exactly yeah. that. You didn't need any fancy social inferences. You just need a zip code, and then you just need to know what the average income in, and you can do a lot of really good targeting on the basis uh, of that. that and, and we, you know, back in the 1990s, the confession, and, and uh, uh, I don't know if the statute limited run. I don't, know if the, I don't think it was a data protection offence, but it might have been an offence to good taste. But um, we would, on our uh, pre-Windows MS-DOS computers, if people can remember those, with the C prompt, uh, we would run a program called EARS Election Agent Record System, uh, which is a tiny little MS-DOS program. And you, we had a little routine using very smart artificial intelligence, I like to call it these days. And it, it had a list of names that are likely to be names of old people, uh, Hilda, Albert, uh, uh, whatever you know, in Britain we kind of know the the names go through. I'm sure they do in all countries. They go through fashions, and it would run through the database and it would flag everybody who had one of the names on our list of probably old people as probably old, and then they would get their targeted letters. So you were doing all the this kind of stuff like way back. And I say now, uh, some snake oil salesman working for you know um, Oxbridge Analytical, whatever, would probably come up and go, "We've got this brilliant new thing," and actually. We had the primitive versions of it back then, but but let's face it: like the technology does all of this so much sort of more efficiently and more expertly than before. And so this last harm is really, I, I mean, to an extent, is an extension of the general debate around should you be doing this sort of creepy online target advertising. And as we've discussed it before, the more I talk about it, the more the more I've sort of become skeptical of this this thing that um, uh, kept me gainfully employed for a number of years. But but so there is this sort of broad set of questions of whether or not you should do target advertising. And then in the political sphere, there is this added element saying, look, you know, the targeted advertising uh, uh, may be what allows, I think the perception, the public perception is it's what allows, uh, in particular, again, these populist right-wing forces to kind of target people with hateful messages and so on. Uh, um we have to say the same technology is used by, and that you and I might think there's a sort of more saintly version of that, which is that, you know, the environmental activist who's trying to get the the 1% or 2% of the population that are really, really focused on their environmental issues to try and get to them so that they can win their support and perhaps get their first foothold in, a, in an elected position. So these tools are used by everyone wherever they are on the political spectrum. I think the common denominator is that these targeting tools are in particular useful to challengers, to people who want to be discovered, who otherwise, you know, have not been able to be discovered. They can't get into the mainstream media. They have no profile. They're new on the scene. Um, so, so there is something about challengers being able to use these tools in a way where, you know, if they're restricted, they'll hit the challenges. If they're restricted, say, I think they may hit the incumbents proportionately less because the incumbents can afford to do the blanket advertising and use other, other ways and they've got presence on the media, for example. So, so we look at the three harms then and we see that the first one uh, that we think is a real harm is against foreign intervention in domestic elections. Um, but the... Proposals as they so so let's now sort of be just figuring out where the cracks are in this. The proposal doesn't address the foreign intervention as much as the labeling of the foreign intervention as foreign. That's sort of the first part. Second uh, part is this notion that the wrong people are winning. 
And um, there, there is like a, a question there. I think that is not just about how do you know how do you know who are the wrong people, and you know is this really the case? And I, I think it's it's interesting that you articulate this harm because I do I do actually think you're right. I mean, it's probably something that a lot of it's it's this lingering theory of of if people only knew they would vote in a different way, and, and that sort of uh, takes agency away from people. I, I worry about that second harm though because it seems to me that it's quite likely that 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 can be used by populist forces to say that they are all against us. Look what they're doing. They're banning everything we're, we're up to and then push people even further apart that it might increase polarization because you feel that this, this sort of the, the establishment as it's usually called, I hate that term, but it's usually used. The establishment is, is out to get you. And then you have the third harm, which is the notion that I think the notion is that micro-targeting actually undermines agency in a very specific way that that sort of you will see something that's so tailored to you and since you don't suspect it's tailored to you you're going to read it and go aha and it's going to bypass all of your sort of critical um, faculties and you'll accept it as given so there's like a that's where the manipulation part is and that part of the proposal says you can't do that unless people explicitly consent so explicit consent actually makes it possible to still do micro-targeting. So it's not a ban on micro-targeting, right? Yeah, there, so there, are you... yeah there, there are actually different debates around that. So the European Data Protection uh, Supervisor actually come out and, and sort of called for a full ban. And what the proposal does is sort of limits it. So it, it says you can't... Uh, for example, use political characteristics and so on, which is these sensitive characteristics in, in European terms, which is kind of curious because often with political advertising, you precisely do want to target people based on their political interests. But I think this is one of the areas that's really going to be open for debate as this proposal is refined. It's just the extent to which, you know, you do go down that path. Do, do, you, do you sort of stop at saying, you know, you can't use political characteristics, but you can micro-target on other factors, uh, there are some factors like geography, actually, which which are essential. You have to be able to target on geography because your messages aren't relevant to people who are outside an electoral area. Um, so, so a sort of ban if you if you sort of took it literally and said you can't ban on the ba- you can't advertise on the basis of en- someone's sort of characteristics generally. Uh, uh, um, age would be another one. Like if you're a certain age, you have to be a certain age to be able to vote. And so, so, so I think we're going to go through a lot of debate trying to unpick what it actually means and where the line should be drawn. It'll be drawn somewhere, uh, but whether it's sort of, well, you know, you just can't use these sensitive personal data type characteristics or whether a, a much broader range of, of interests and, and targeting criteria prohibited, uh, I think that's kind of open for debate and is going to be a key area now. And it would be quite a, a radical choice to say that you cannot even explicitly consent to that kind of processing happening. Yeah, I think that's interesting to me. If that is what indeed, and I mean, of course, that's, that would be the sort of natural response if you really do believe that micro-targeting undermines the individual ability to critically reason. Um, so, so let's let's talk about before we sort of dig into to. I mean, there are there are interesting second order effects here that we can talk about. Let's talk about how this. Let's talk about the subject of the uh, the legislation. This is yeah. addressed at social media platforms. So, Why is it not addressed at political parties? 
Well, I think that's, again, because of this issue that, that the European Union doesn't have competence to regulate the political parties directly. And I actually think that's the biggest sort of structural weakness here. That that it's And again, it's only part of the picture. But really, I mean, again, I've run political campaigns. I know it's like, like what you are scared of is is breaking the rules in such a way that you get disqualified from the election or prosecuted uh, as a criminal matter. And again, we should be really, I should be candid that that the culture of a political campaign is you just push things absolutely as far as you can go because you genuinely believe you're out to save the universe. You know, your team's got to win. You need to save your country. Wherever you are on the political spectrum, that's your view. And winning is all. Like there, there are no you know, the classic, there's no prize for coming second. You've got to win this election, and and um, so you'll push things absolutely to the limit. Now, what what restrains you really is the idea that you're going to cross a line where um, it's so egregious that you're going to get disqualified from the election and or end up facing a criminal prosecution. And and the only way that happens is if the law says. You, you know, you political party must not do this. And so saying to the platforms, you know, uh, platforms, you must enforce transparency is not the same, I think, in effect, as saying to parties, you must be transparent. But the European Union doesn't have the ability to do that. So now what what we would hopefully see is a set of corresponding legislation at the national level, which which does fill in these gaps. And the corresponding legislation at the national level so if, if the EU regulation says platforms, you must create a transparency mechanism and it must look like this, the the national level legislation should say uh, uh, campaigns, you must be transparent. In fact, I would go so far as to say, look, the, the primary responsibility should be on the on the political platforms. And actually, um, Brazil, as I understand it, did bring in a law like this and they can do that because they're a unified state. And the Brazilian law says political parties you must be transparent about all the advertising you run. And so you could, in theory, sort of produce on your own website a full roster of all the advertising you've run and do all the transparency stuff. But as a matter of convenience, it's much easier if the platform will do it for you. But the legal responsibility is clearly on the party. And the party has to assure itself that any platform it uses can provide sufficient transparency for it to meet its legal obligations. And so you're using like a market mechanism uh, where the main driver is the person who is most interested because they've got most at stake, the politician who doesn't want to get disqualified. So the politician you know, knows they have to make sure it's transparent and then they'll go to the providers, the Facebooks and the Googles and everybody and go, look, you must give me these transparency tools or I can't use your platform or I will get prosecuted. So that's the bit that completes the picture and and just, you know, because of the way EU law works, that's not something the EU can do, but maybe member states will do it. Um, and we should be clear as well. I mean, for some member states, all of this stuff is kind of sounds academic. The French just ban political advertising of all sorts, and so, so you know, if you're in France, it's like, yeah, fine. But this this doesn't this regulation doesn't now allow you to do political advertising as long as you're you're conform with the regulation. It's still banned in France, and so that's one example where well, if you're well, in France. I mean- on that point, there is there is an or there used to be a really interesting distinction between political advertising and issue based advertising. Yeah, um, that seems to now be bundled into one. Um, 
What do you think about that? Is that a yeah, so, good way? So the to regulation proceed? actually uses a definition which I think is the is the sort of least bad definition you can use. I mean, it's the only one that's sort of vaguely workable. Seeks um, to influence or liable to influence uh, uh, an exactly, upcoming election yeah. or referendum. Yeah. Exactly. It's, so they, they actually they define uh, we we should use the use the language that they define, which is that uh, uh, political advertising uh, is um, uh, liable to influence the outcome of an election or referendum, a legislative or regulatory process, or voting behaviour. So that's quite broad, and that will need interpreting, and you can interpret that in lots of different ways. And I remember, again, at, at Facebook, we had this debate about trying to define it, uh, and at one point we defined it quite mechanistically, and it kind of said, well, if it's about the environment, then then it's a political ad. And actually, no, I mean, you know, I, uh, again, the test that the EU's applying, I think, is a smarter test, which says, look, is it intended to influence something? So if you have you know, some clothing company going, my clothes are greener than everyone else's. You know, we love the environment. We've sourced responsible cotton. Like, to my mind, that isn't liable to influence the outcome of a voter referendum. It's on a a current political issue, the environment. But I would say it's like, it's a nonsense, actually, and unhelpful to include that sort of stuff because that then just sort of creates noise when what you really want is stuff that is you know, you know the intent. You know the intent of the clothing manufacturers to sell more clothes, <laughs> even though they're talking about environmental issues. Now, someone else coming in, but, going, pass a law to ban, you know, uh, uh, fossil fuel emitting vehicles like that is intended to influence a policy outcome. Yes, and so you're, let's you're throw pensive, out. I can see on the back of that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's interesting. I just want want to throw around a few examples here. I guess Greenpeace would always be an issue based ad, right? Yeah, I mean it's explicit. They are they are seeking. So again, it's and this is why it's difficult and why the platforms found it. It's much easier to say, you know search for the word environment, reduce CO two, is easy for a computer to do trying to figure out intent actually requires you to look at the content in detail and intent often depends on the actor. So I would say, you know, Greenpeace is one. We, we used to have this example of, you know, what, what if a, you know, politician wants to put out a cookery recipe, uh, you know, and they want to advertise how good they are at cooking. Now the ad has no political content in it, but because a politician is doing it, it's clearly intended to try and make them more popular so they can win the election. So it's intended to in- influence the outcome of an election. Greenpeace, I'd argue, in everything they do are always seeking to change political outcomes. There's no, there's n- Greenpeace are never not doing that. That's their sort of core objective. The clothing company is not seeking to influence politics in most cases, unless they did come up and they said, they might exceptionally say, uh, government, you must pass a law on sustainable supply chains, or you must pass a law on uh, um, employee rights, you know, uh, recognition of same-sex relationships or something like that. So, so commercial businesses can get involved in politics, but the default position is they're very unlikely to be doing so. Whereas, you know, a, a, an overtly political organization, I think they're almost invariably going to be doing something that is political, um, intended to influence a regulatory outcome. But a large clothing chain that six weeks prior to an election posts an entire advertising campaign focused on the environment and echoes words and phrases used by a political party would certainly be subsumed under that, right? They would be a political yeah. or issue ad. 
I mean, I think that's the that's the edge case. That's the hard edge case. I would still say generally, you know, I'm, um, you know, are they? What again? It's a little bit the reasonable person test. But would a reasonable person think that their primary intent? Uh, was to try and influence the outcome of the election or to sell clothes? Are they piggybacking? So actually, when there's an example around COP26, you know, there were lots of companies who on the back of this big climate change conference, COP26, were trying to demonstrate their climate credentials. And some of their stuff got caught up. Um, an organization I work for, which is just campaigning to have more electric vehicles, sort of found its content so, uh, uh, caught up in that um, because it was deemed to be political because it was talking about COP26. Um, so I think we really do need to make a judgment kind of on intent. And and again, what what's the outcome we're aiming for here? We're aiming for uh, a clarity and understanding for the electorate. And if you if you have a sort of political ads library, which is what they're trying to do, they're trying to you know uh, make sure there's a a sort of body of content that people can go and look at that tells them who was doing political advertising, when they were doing it, why they were doing it, all of that stuff. If uh, it's full of clothing ads that really only very marginally associated with it, then. I actually think it devalues the database as opposed to the data. You know, the database was missing overtly political stuff. That's a problem. But it also if it includes a whole load of stuff that really was not intended to influence the outcome of election, then I'm not sure that really helps. In fact, I'll say I think it devalues the database. And so, so let's go back to the Greenpeace example. Not, I, not to, to sort of single them out, but just because it's interesting. Now, assume we're doing initial-based ads. It's about um, uh, what was the, the Dilbert phrase? Shaving the whales, <laughs> saving the whales. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we say, you know, we're doing this because we think it's important to affect a new trade treaty or a new international treaty on whale hunting, etc. Now, uh, we have to label that clearly, and we have to talk about how much money we spent, but. Uh, between you and I, do you know who funds Greenpeace? Do you remember where they get their money? Uh, no, no. Again, you'd have to trace that back. And this is this is a second order effect, which we already actually, uh, um, again, when I worked uh, uh, for um, the company formerly known as Facebook, they, they um, had some issues there as well, where there was a kind of expectation that you trace the money back. And again, this is one of those structural issues with this regulation, not to blame the commission, but they just can't go here. But what, what they're doing effectively, again, and I have an issue with this, is sort of trying to get the platforms to act as a regulator. So you're kind of putting the burden on the platforms to have some kind of quasi-regulatory function in respect of the political entities because they're required to you know do the best efforts to make sure they collect this data and portray it and so on and the problem with that is it then sort of feeds the idea that they should be doing the whole regulatory piece including things like checking where the funds are coming from and so we you know for, for the advertisers and that's absolutely not their job there are other people whose job it is to do that and those are the charity regulators or the electoral regulators in each country and again we sometimes miss this we sort of dump it all on the platforms because that's where it's visible and then we create expectations that are actually unrealistic i would say you can only really go so far as to require a platform to talk to directly to the customer get the information from the customer and display that now second third level drilling down into where that customer got their money from and and their bank accounts and their finances is not the business of platforms it is absolutely the business of lots of other regulatory bodies that already exist whose job is precisely to regulate 
uh, either charitable or or um, political entities. And if we think they're not doing enough, and we think there's not enough information about Greenpeace's finances, we shouldn't be asking a platform on the back of a political ads regulation to make Greenpeace be transparent about their finances. We should just get the charity regulator to make Greenpeace transparent about their finances. Now, th- this is interesting because it leads us to the discussion of second order effects. I think, and we should, we should, we should, we should sort of figure out how second order effects come about. One big driver behind second order effects is that attached to this regulation uh, in the proposed version uh, are the fines that are attached to the GDPR, which means that the fines can be not just in the hundreds of thousands or in the millions, but frankly, in the billions, because their percentage of, of, um, of uh, is a global turnover or revenue, I never remember. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's the fines are, are prohibitive and punitive uh, to a very large degree. So there's teeth to this regulation, which is something that I think European Commission sees as very positive, and you know any regulation that is is lacks teeth is is probably meaningless. So that's that's a good thing, but that will then drive second order effects. And on this point, on a sort of transparency, um, is it is it not likely? I mean, the only way I see this developing is that if there is an association wanting to put an issue ad up, and they're called the European uh, the Eastern the Eastern Friendship Association uh, wants to advertise. Uh, in a local uh, election, then they just call themselves the Eastern uh, Friendship Association, and we we look at them and we see they're they're certainly an association. There is an association registered in in uh, Switzerland, say, or somewhere else, and it seems mm-hmm. to be called exactly that. Um, at that point, it becomes really hard because we don't know where they got the millions they're spending on advertising in France. On well, France is a bad example because it's prohibited, but they, we don't know where they got yeah. the money that they're using to advertise. Um, and so at that point, is it, I mean, the, the only way as a platform that you don't wade into to sort of the kinds of muddy waters where, where there could be uh, GDPR shark swimming uh, is to say, no, we're going to require that you are a registered charity in one of these different registries. Yes. And that's the only way you get to do issue based ads. Isn't that where that's heading? So, um, I mean, it's, you've really to put your touch on because at the last European parliamentary elections, I was I was uh, involved in the discussions around the approach to that. And at that point, because of this notion of foreign interference, we, uh, we at that case, being the, the sort of policy team at Facebook, felt that it was really important that in order for you to advertise in a country, you had to have a legal presence there. And that and and that's really for for quite a fundamental reason, which is that the only way that the authorities in that country could hold you to account if you were doing something wrong is if you were in the country. If you're outside the country, chances are it would be very difficult to to follow up if an election authority or anyone else sort of thought that your intervention was inappropriate. So we came up the rule and said, yes, you must have a presence in any country where you want to advertise and the system check for that. And we actually had complaints come back and they're, they're referenced in this document of, um, and we kind of anticipated this was going to happen, but complaints came from Brussels to say, but there are pan-EU entities who want to advertise on a pan-EU basis and are only established in one country. This is fundamentally against the single market. And we're like, well, you know, you have one or the other, because to, exactly to your point, like you may say this is a legitimate pan-EU entity uh, and it should be able to advertise across the EU, but we don't know that that's going to be acceptable in every member state. And we don't. I mean, there's no way to tell that. And actually, if you, if you sort of follow what was going on, you get these sort of... Uh, um, uh, matches which I still think are going on between 
uh, particularly politicians, I'll name him because he's very public, something like Guy Verhofstadt versus, you know, a lot of the politicians in Hungary, and they're kind of shouting at each other. And so I don't know if, if Guy Verhofstadt, who is a European politician, wants to advertise in Hungary, for example. Like, I don't know that the Hungarian government are okay with that, or vice versa, if the Hungarian government want to advertise in Belgium and say, Guy Verhofstadt's terrible. Like, we don't know that. So interestingly, in the, in the explanatory text for this regulation, they're kind of saying they want to be able to encourage pan-EU stuff, but it does create, back to the first harm, it creates quite a lot of risk in the first harm. Not not necessarily sort of changing the substance of the risk, but it certainly changes the accountability. I mean, your you know your Russian can still uh, try and advertise in these countries, but if you said as a condition of it, you must create a legal entity in those countries, and what you can't do is create a legal entity in one EU country and then blast the rest of the EU. That was the kind of harm we're trying to protect against. But it's very interesting you hit there because I predicted it and we had it, and there were very sort of angsty conversations. Uh, criticizing uh, Facebook and saying we were against the whole EU project and the EU ideal, and it wasn't. It was just like we thought you wanted us to protect the elections, and you know, cross-border advertising is an issue uh, because of accountability and enforceability. It's really hard to enforce outside your borders. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, again, so a lot of these things you end up with these trade-offs. You know, always getting trade-offs. But the trade-offs here seem to be narrowing the, the 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 space for political speech quite radically. Because what ends up if you're a small, fast-growing organization uh, with young people interested in saving the climate, for example, and you want to have a voice in the European elections, you're just going to have a voice in the countries where you're legally present. Which means that what what's happening here, and that that can't be the purpose of the legislation, because it can't be a harm that young people everywhere can organize. That so what happens here is that the second order effect significantly narrows political speech. And that in turn seems to suggest, or at least seems to to I mean, one possible way that evolves is that you will see the rise of a lot of political advertising that is not on the social media platforms, but outside of them. And you will see campaigning that is much harder to regulate and explore and understand where the money is coming from. And those websites, what happens if those websites are then shared on social media? Let's say that there's a website for this climate alliance of young people in Sweden who want to affect the, the, the... uh, all of the elections in uh, Europe, they have a wonderful, beautiful website where they where they advertise, but just to Swedes because they can't advertise to anyone else. But they also have a lot of editorial content, etc. And they and then suddenly it would be spread. Would would this impact also the the way that other secondary information is distributed on platforms? So it's not looking at content that is not offered for consideration, as in money. Um, so it's interesting, and actually, the case you describe of the group of young people trying to do good things is the case that actually came up in the European Parliament elections. But the issue is that, look, if you're trying to operate in neutral fashion, if people remember that this guy uh, from the US, Steve Bannon, had threatened to organise a pan-EU alliance of populists who were going to try and run, you know, um, uh, get uh, American money and kind of use it to push populist calls across Europe. So the problem was you couldn't really have a set of rules that says, well, no Steve Bannon, but your um, cuddly Swedish uh, environmental activist can do it. Either you're going to not have cross-border or you're going to have cross-border. Um, and so that's the real challenge. But, but again, it is a trade-off. And and if you say, well, let's have cross-border, you're opening up to risk. You're creating a different kind of risk. Um, but I think we have to accept 
again, I think it's not the right place to place to put platforms in a position where they have to say, well, this cross-border one's okay and that one's not okay. That's like, from a democratic point of view, that's not the role of platforms. But to your point on on um, workarounds, I mean, on the fines, actually, w- one of the challenges here is going to be, look, if if platforms make best efforts and they try and comply with this regulation and capture the ads and so on, they're still going to miss stuff. Like, in the grand scheme of things, they're going to miss stuff. Now, if people come steaming in and go, right, unless you're perfect, I'm going to really go after you and I'm going to try and get you fined and I'm going to try and get you punished, then the logical choice for a platform is just to get out of this market. And they're already on the edge. I mean, uh, political ads are more trouble than they're worth uh, in many they're cases. They're not worth certainly that much. I mean, there, there's not- a chunk of money there, but I, I get a sense that it's not... If, if you look the at the potential fines, yeah, in yeah. the US they are, but that's in not the where the regulation are, applies. Europe. No, no. In Europe, there's not a lot of money in political ads, and so, so I, you know, the the risk is: look, if if your yeah your lawyers will look at it and go, you know, if there is a serious risk of us getting a you know multi multi million dollar fine, let's just not be in the political ad business, uh, and they'll just go the way I think uh, TikTok's that in that direction. I think uh, Twitter w- uh, did ban political ads. I think they may still have that ban. So you'll just end up with all the platforms banning it, and then irony of ironies, we may then get. Uh, sort of must carry <laughs> rules. We may we then get a proposal for regulation. Go no platforms must allow political advertising. But but as long as as long as they have a choice, if threatened with these very serious sanctions, then perhaps we shut the market down. And then to your other point, the the, the you know um, uh, and this notion of sort of campaigners. Campaigners are creative. The best campaigners, the people who win, the ones I've worked with, are creative, and they will work around any problem that stands in their way. So if formal paid-for political ads are no longer a route to market and you still need to get out to people and you still need to uh, contact electors to win, you'll find other routes. And we see this already and people already complain about it, but it's, you know, it's the it's the telephone tree model, effectively the network of activists who you start using private messaging channels and you start collecting identifiers to push stuff out through private messaging channels. And that is not formally advertising there's not a formal consideration uh, given but i know again a lot of people in the political world worry about that and see that almost as more sort of harmful and subversive than the upfront political advertising well, well i mean the political advertising has to be the single most auditable format of political communication out there that's that's the one you can actually look at how much money who actually paid for it who who are you targeting? If you if you say that the second order effect is that this is closed down and it moves into um, secondary content or editorial content that is then spread through social media platforms, uh, then what we know is that outrage spreads faster than recent argument. So you displace the entire auditable political advertising into a space where you actually encourage it to become more focused on outrage and emotion. And the end result is that you have a non-auditable, much more outraged discussion that you cannot regulate because it's pure speech. Yeah. That, that seems to be a less than optimal outcome. That's right. And, and that's why I think that makes the case for, I'd argue, you actually need a, a proper comprehensive conversation around how you want your elections and your political campaigns outside election time to operate in each particular country. Uh, and again, there are lots of different ways to organize them and not everyone's going to have the same rules, but that we need that conversation. And then the political advertising slots in as one part of that. Um, but we need to have a conversation. And again, primarily, 
the tools that we have are to regulate the behavior of the political actors. The people who are, who are most incentivized to cheat are the political actors because they want to win. And, and again, I would say, you know, foreign interference is sometimes a thing, but I would say in most cases, it's only going to be a tiny fraction of the effort that's put in by the domestic actors because they are literally the beneficiaries. They're the people who, who are going to be in government after an election is over. So they're the ones who are most motivated. They may get some help from outside, but it's domestic we should really worry about. And you need real clarity about where the boundaries are for your domestic operators, and we need to be thinking ahead. And so, you know, that example, if we think that running uh, a sort of telephone tree type effects, you know, getting activists to to collect um, uh, instant messenger uh, type IDs and push messages out. If we think that's a problem, then we regulate to ban that. And then if there is proof that a political party is doing it uh, and we disqualify them the, from the election and we prosecute them, I mean, if that's the decision, uh, of the, then that's the thing that's going to stop it. It's not going to be stopped uh, unless there are some consequences for the people who are most motivated to do it. If we think the problem is irregular organizations, non-partisan organizations being set up, you know, there's a US model of the super PAC, then we need regulation that says you can't do that. And and in, unless you have that, just kind of saying, well, we've got to make your ads more transparent is not going to be sufficient. So again, back to the title of that, that paper I cited from Amsterdam University, it's transparency, uh, but no more than transparency. And uh, And again, I think the European Commission are very conscious of that. They're not, they can't step outside their remit. But as citizens, I think we need this much more comprehensive debate. Like, it's an odd one because like most of us will go, oh, we hate political propaganda and we hate politicians, but hopefully we love democracy. And so if we want a functioning democracy, we need to accept a certain amount of propaganda, uh, but we should be trying to define the terms under which it's acceptable and then saying to the political actors, this is how we think you should do your propaganda in my country, obviously within the constraints of any constitutional freedom of expression requirements and so on um but that's the that comprehensive question is the one that's going to have to happen whereas at the moment it does feel a little bit piecemeal it's like whack-a-mole we'll we'll kind of deal with political ads over here and then maybe in five years time when we've had a couple of elections that have been put down to you know some other phenomenon that we thought uh, uh was was cheating or inappropriate but we haven't spotted before we'll go after that and uh, i think we need that first principle debate Again, the, the French yeah. approach is quite simple. <laughs> it's, it has this wonderful benefit of clarity. It, the, the nice thing, it doesn't talk about channels. So in the UK, for example, it says you can't buy broadcasting uh, TV or radio, but there were, it was silent. The law was silent on other channels, other media, and therefore, you know, because you, you're not prohibited, you do it. The French one is just really simple. You can't pay <laughs> for publicity because we believe the election should be fought on organic content. And yeah, that's simple. Yeah. Yeah, no, that seems to be low-hanging fruit to ensure that you have technology neutrality in your voting laws. I think that's interesting. I, so the two, two things come to mind here that I feel are important to, to sort of at least consider. One is that this is not a new phenomenon. We talked in our uh, summer reading uh, edition about the book, uh, If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future by Jill Lepore. And she details in that book uh, a company that said that with its new technologies and its new targeting, it actually affected the Kennedy election. So everything that the Simulmatics organization said and the entire debate that came after that in the 60s is essentially reminiscent of what we have now. So I think it's useful to go back to and read that. And the reason I think it's useful because it highlights something else. We need to start, and we have said this several times before when we have discussed, we sort of come to a point where we say, 
why don't we start to discuss what a good outcome is? Yeah. And I think that if you if you sort of if you ask yourself the question, what is a healthy legitimate election, and what is a justified vote? If you start there and you start thinking about that, I think you realize two things immediately. One, it's a precarious discussion to have because who decides what a healthy election is, right? And who decides what a justified vote is? But as you start mapping that out, as you start mapping out what health is in order to be able to identify disease, I think you will run into a lot of really interesting questions around the kinds of demands you can put on voters or the kinds of demands you can put on an election. I mean, is it a healthy election if 80% who actually um, came to vote afterwards say I voted my conscience and this is what I really believe or do you have to justify the vote in some other way and my conscience was was sort of produced and, and constructed by a recent argument and uh, I have not read any books or newspapers or looked at any social media uh, in four months before the election so that I would not be affected if you start looking at the outcome and the notion of a healthy election and a justified vote I think I think you realize that this problem probably is, is probably orders of magnitude harder, if at all solvable, than than, it, than sort of the the very narrow focus on political advertising seems to suggest. Yeah, I mean the language I, I like, um, which is used a lot, is free and fair election. Was it a free and fair election? Um, and and actually, free in many cases means that you you know people are free to vote. For ways which which other people think are completely unacceptable, um, as long as it's freely done, and and fair, was there a sort of reasonably level playing field? And I think we again we need sort of political academic theoreticians to kind of inform this. I think there is one one though um, sort of particular uh, challenge around election regulation and regulation in this space versus other forms of regulation, which is that almost by definition, the losers of an election are going to feel that it was the system what was rigged against them. Because you just can't, having been in elections, like it's really hard emotionally to kind of go... But that was not always the case. That's a fairly modern phenomenon, well, I would argue, because there would be people, you know, you would have elections in the in the 70s yeah. where people go like, well, the people have spoken, this is what we do, and there's we're a just not doing that anymore. Sync version, I think of a, I think it was a Californian center, is that the, the people have spoken the bastards uh, after it lost, <laughs> which I think was... And then you move on. Um, but but I say it's sort of inherent. It's really hard to accept that you were the you were the failure, and therefore you you sort of tend to I think. And we got the biggest sulk on the planet right now on, on that of somebody kind of saying, "Well, it, it wasn't me; it was the system." So that sort of problem, I think, it's it's always been there to let a greater or lesser degree. Now the question is, so whether you're able to overcome that and move on. You know, after it's what you feel on the night. It's probably what you feel the next week. But most of us have grown up enough then to move on and go. Well, actually, I wasn't a very good candidate. You know, or we we argued our case very badly. Um, so, so I say that's one inherent feature. But the other one that I think is equally problematic is that the winners, by definition, have no incentive in changing the system that they won under. And so, again, what we see is lots and lots of sort of talk. And I'd be very to see if this regulation does make it all the way through. Uh, and get through all of the EU system. And when it hits the Council of Ministers and so on, how far they're sort of comfortable moving this direction. Because I say, if you won in an election, then then 
you know, uh, you're unlikely. You might before the election say, well, the system is terrible. It needs changing. And then you win and you kind of go, well, we'll put that off. We'll pump that off into the long grass because <laughs> as long as we're winning, it's OK. So it's this weird dynamic where where winners are, are rarely incentivized to change the system under which they won, um, other, other than perhaps to entrench uh uh, the things that they thought helped them win, but generally not to kind of clean things up, if you put it that way. And so, you know, things like campaign finance law get bogged down for years because people are sort of doing quite well out of it. Interestingly, very few countries have actually regulated online advertising, uh, even in the, what is it now, six years since 2016? You know, there's, there's a bit of Brazil's regulated and Canada's regulated, but a lot of other countries haven't. And that's because they've got governments who, probably feel they're doing quite well out of online advertising and don't want to constrain themselves. Um, and then when you've got this hmm. other dynamic, which is to say that the most effective tools are the ones that say, here's a set of rules. And if you candidates or parties break them, we're going to disqualify you and or prosecute you. And again, to have politicians vote for laws that threaten themselves, we're quite happy to vote for laws, I speak as a politician, really happy to vote for laws and say, well, look, we'll send the tech company executives to prison and we'll find them. But ask me to vote for a law where I'll say, look, if I get it wrong, if I don't do the paperwork correctly, or you know, if I use targeted advertising in an inappropriate way, I, as the candidate, get disqualified or sent to prison, like, that's a harder sell, frankly. Shouldn't be, but it is uh, in any system. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, and it and it and it and it's sort of also uh, it brings us back to the core of the problem here, which is that that it, it, uh, many of those politicians who were elected would argue that the elections were free and fair, and uh, we might have to leave to the listener as an exercise to identify in the last fifteen years elections that they think have not been free and fair, because there has to be yeah. if there are no such elections. If there are no elections that we don't consider to be mostly free and fair or to a majority free and fair in the last 15 years in the European Union, then then there doesn't seem to be that much of a problem either. If we start from the elections, there's a, there's a yeah. really intriguing set of, of challenges here that, that, we, that we certainly could do well to explore further. That's right. And I think some of the biggest challenges that have been raised, and again, this is not diverting attention, but I think they are real substantial challenges, are actually about government control of the traditional media. So, so that free and fairness, uh, it, it, you know, but the uh, sort of very strong signal that an election is unlikely to be free and fair is called control of the traditional media. Largely, again, ironically, because the social media space has been relatively unregulated, the chances are that the opposition parties and opposition forces and the smaller forces in countries where there is a general authoritarian tendency to the to the government, they've actually been able to hold their own on social media. Where they can't hold their own is the traditional media when the traditional media is entirely in the hands of the government. And so, again, one of the things we need to look out for, you've got to look at it holistically, is, look, if you're, if you're cracking down on social media ads, and maybe in some countries social media ads are seen as the problem and and the traditional media is absolutely scrupulously balanced and is not not in any way undermining the election that's fine move across the road and you're in a country where the traditional media is entirely either directly in the hands of or heavily influenced by the government and you start cracking down on social media or limiting the scope for the use of social media you've actually had a very different impact so it has a different partisan effect swinging things in favour of of the incumbents, uh, the government in that case, against the challenges. So. 
That's a good Something reminder. That's a good reminder. Something to watch out for. So um, I think I, there are certainly going to be more opportunities to discuss this, but I think we mm -hmm. we will we will close our discussion for now, and we can yeah. find this podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech, where you'll also find. I mean, if you search on there for partisan effects or elections, I've written quite a lot on this over the last year or two, and so there's quite a bunch of stuff that might be interesting. Oh, extra content! That's good. You'll yes. find them in the show notes as well. So, yeah. um, thank you very much for listening. As always, keep your proposals coming on uh, subjects and ideas, and uh, we hope to have you with us for the next episode. <laughs>